Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, Chris Tilling, and Jules Martinez Olivieri. I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Green, professor of public theology at Southeastern University in Lincoln, Florida, and pastor at Sanctuary Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Today, we will be talking about his brand new Octopress's book, All Things Beautiful and Aesthetic Christology, published with Baylor University Press in 2021. Um, I am delighted to talk with you about this book, Chris. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. And uh, I'll note for our listeners, we are recording this right before Christmas. And as Chris will no doubt talk about in a moment, the structure of his book is around the uh, church calendar. And so by the time you listen to this, <laughs> uh, we uh, we could be in ordinary time or <laughs> we'll see. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but that's uh, just want to sort of note the location, uh, our, our, our location in time as we are talking now. So let's begin to get to know you a little bit. You've got quite a set of job titles. Could you start us off today by talking about what public theology is? We've had a lot of different theologians on the podcast. It's always helpful to hear from people how they sort of embody theology. So if you could talk about what public theology is and what your journey into this field has looked like, and is is there a moment or two that stands out as being particularly formative for you? Yeah, I think... Public theology, at least in at our school and in our circles, it's a way of engaging public issues, social concerns, with, with theological grounding and framing. And in my tradition, the Pentecostal, classical Pentecostal tradition, school where I teach is Assemblies of God, which I know you know something about. It there there's there's not really a tradition of that, especially in kind of the white wing of the movement. There's a there's a kind of otherworldliness, which I'm sure will come up again later in the conversation when we talk about art. But I, part of what I wanted to do in proposing that position was to say Pentecostals should be engaged in these matters. At the time, I was doing a lot of work on the history of race and racism in the Pentecostal tradition. And so that was the particular angle, I think, that I had taken into those concerns, but I don't think it's limited to race and Pentecostals are, it's obviously, as you know, a massive movement and, and yet our sense of public responsibility is almost nothing, right? I mean, there's very little sense amongst people in my circles that we have any real responsibility, at least Christian responsibility. There might be a sense of political responsibility, voting and so on, but but not as Christians. So I think that's that's where that language came from for me. Do you have a moment or two that was particularly formative for you? Because you just mentioned with the tradition that sort of bifurcation of as Christian and then political. I, I understand that, but can you unpack that a little bit um, for our listeners kind of say, and then and maybe if there's a particular moment for you where that became really clear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it tends to be, and of course, I mean, generalizations, they're always risky, and there are all kinds of exceptions to these rules. But as a rule, 
in the U.S. classical Pentecostals, which are Pentecostals that come from the Azusa Street Revival and are rooted in kind of holiness traditions, Wesleyan holiness traditions that end up shaping like the Assemblies of God denomination, the Church of God. And then, of course, amongst black Pentecostals, Church of God in Christ and so on. There, there tends to be what Bonifer calls realm thinking. There's kind of a your life is split into the stuff that has to do with God, the realm of the spirit, the realm of prayer and faith. And then there's the public realm of political life, social life. And often those are understood to be realms that operate by different rules. And so in general, in my circles, people tend to be very right wing politically and otherworldly in their spirituality. And that, again, all kinds of exceptions to that. And in during certain periods, and I think over the last five to 10 years, we've seen the ways in which those can kind of collapse into their opposite. And people who for years and years and years have talked about the separation between the church and politics, you know, you should preach the gospel and not worry about social justice. If the, if the tides are right, they can entirely shift to a different way of thinking and talking. But I, I think that what you see, at least theologically, is that Pentecostals, people in the Pentecostal movement at large, they've not had any sense of responsibility to do theology on public issues. They haven't felt any sense of responsibility to write or speak or think about those matters of concern for everybody. And that's kind of what animated me, particularly around issues of race. I mean, that's what that's what I think summoned me into that space personally. Um, also issues of women's ordination, but that's still a little more ecclesial than public, although it matters publicly. But I think it was really, for me, in the aftermath of the Michael Brown shooting that I kind of came aware of what I felt I needed to do as a theologian related to those concerns. That was, that was the particular moment for me as well. Um, with Ferguson and, and Mike Brown, um, the response there, that was particularly formative for me as well. Well, we're going to be spending a good amount of time today talking about your book. So when we, when you say an aesthetic Christology, what is an aesthetic Christology and what provoked you to write this book? Yeah, it's interesting. I woke up one morning. This was right at the beginning of the pandemic and realized that I wanted to write this book. And I had the basic idea for it and kind of shot an email off to Baylor because I, I associate, for whatever reason, I associated Baylor University Press with a work like this. Um, and they said, yeah, we'd love to see what you've done. So I got busy kind of writing it up. So it, it, it came to me quickly. I acted on it quickly. Since then, I've, I've realized that I actually want to do a trilogy, a, a kind of Christological trilogy. This would be the first one, engaging the transcendentals of the good, the true, and the beautiful. This is particularly concerned with the beautiful. So if I get to them, hopefully I will, I'll do two more kind of in this vein dealing next with goodness and last of all with with truth but the aesthetic christology language i mean it's you know i'm one of those who lets no pretension go untried but i i do think there's a need for theological engagement that 
is shaped by the experience of the arts and the beautiful and doesn't just simply make raids on the arts to illustrate. I mean, this is, this is what I think marks a lot of evangelical, broadly speaking, evangelical engagement with the arts. Really, it's we have ideas we're already committed to, and then we go looking for illustrations of those ideas in movies or novels. And I wanted to su- su- suggest that's that's not actually what engagement with the beautiful looks like and and should be like. So that in, in part, what I'm pushing for here is this is a book about Jesus informed by the ways in which film and poetry and novels have shaped the way I think about Jesus. So it is a Christology. It's not a book about beauty per se. It's a book about Jesus deeply shaped by films I've seen and stories I've read and the in that way there there is a kind of arbitrariness to it in that I haven't read everything and I haven't seen everything. So there's a limit already on which arts I'm engaging. But I, I tried to limit myself to the things that have deeply impacted me. And in that way it's I think all theology, right, is autobiographical at some level. There's there's you're revealing something about yourself. But in this case, I, I really am writing from what are those things I've seen and heard, read that deeply imprinted me and that I associate with Jesus and with what I know of him. So I think that's, you know, that, that's the root of it. Yeah. And um, we'll get to in a moment, some of those examples of films and such. I, I, <laughs> um, as I realized how many movies I haven't seen reading your book, <laughs> uh, ones that have been on the list for a long time, ones that I see kind of popping up, you know, there's a few of them uh, and stories and books that I've seen kind of engage with other theologians and that kind of thing. But, um, and then a few new ones. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, but I wanted to come back to that piece about structure, about how you structured this book around the liturgical calendar and each chapter representing a section of the Christian story, beginning with Advent and ending with a long stretch of ordinary time, leading us back into Advent. So certain Christian traditions are more reliant on this storied structure than others. I know that on-script listeners run the gamut from backgrounds in which prayer books and cycles of liturgical readings and changing vestments is basic, and others who, like me, who had no idea what was going on the first time I stepped into a church that functioned that way. Um, No idea. What went through your mind as you thought about your audience, and why did you take this approach? Yeah, I I think to me part of it is commonsensical in that when you're writing about theology and the arts, liturgy is right at the intersection. So that that's some of it. Some of it too is I personally f- have found it compelling and this book is written from from that place, you know, what has shaped me and what has moved me. And I I definitely do not want to suggest something like I mean there it's been sexy for a while, I guess, to to try, especially for those of us who are from free church, low church traditions, kind of finding the broader liturgical traditions. There could be some naivete about the power of those practices. There's, you know, so much talk for years about the formational power of liturgy and so on. I'm pretty skeptical about a lot of that. I mean, I think it's not all nonsense, but it's easy to oversell the, the power of liturgy, the, sh- the ways in which it can shape us. And we, we talk, I think, too, too glibly about the ways in which 
practices like the Christian year can form our imagination. But all that said, I do think there's something wonderful about each year living together through the story of Jesus, right? Like kind of beginning with this expectation, Advent of his coming, celebrating Christmas together in Epiphany, then preparing ourselves through Lent for those high days of the Christian year, Good Friday and so on. Uh, that that does seem to me there's a wisdom to that, and I don't want to oversell its power. And I don't think that it's 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 not any kind of magical discipleship tactic, but I do think there's something beautiful about it and something right about attending to the story of Jesus. And and one of the things I think I found most compelling about it is its cyclical nature. Right? So and here you and I I think we share this too. I mean I was raised in. A church that I think they thought of discipleship much as they thought of civilization as kind of always progressing to something better, right? Like it's just kind of a straight ascending line into a better and better future. And that's just not what the Christian life is, I think. It's much more going back to where you've been before, wandering in the wilderness more than it is just kind of a constant ascent to something greater. And I I like, I'm I'm drawn by the fact that Yes, we're celebrating Advent right now, and then next year we'll do it again, right? Like, like we'll be right back here again, and that I find truthful, right? In, in just a very straightforward sense. Well, humans humans need structure, <laughs> um, and not just any kinds of structure, right? Uh, we need structure. We also need. Um, a sense of time passing, as much as we get frustrated by time passing, um, or whether it's going too slowly or too quickly, um, we get we we always chafe against that. Um, and there, there's something it, it reminds me of how, you know, especially living in a place where there's changing seasons, as much as when the beginning of March shows up here in New England, I am just done. <laughs> I'm just done with the barren trees and the ice and the cold and why can't it be warm already? If I didn't have that, if I didn't have that sort of sense of, of shifting of seasons, um, you know, asterisk or footnote with uh, the drama of climate change around that, and that's a topic for another time, but it just demonstrates how, to me, how much I need to kind of have a cyclical nature of, of kind of thinking about mortality periodically, thinking about light and coming and hope periodically. And then I kind of need that for me. It's really hard to manufacture your own structure. That's right. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that has led and will continue to lead to kind of the breakdown of free church American, white American evangelicalism is that we we expected people to kind of outfit themselves for the whole of the Christian life, like give them a Bible, attend church once a week, and then you figure everything else out on your own. And that's an unbearable burden. Like you, you, you'll either cr- fall under the weight of it or you'll succeed in some way that turns you into a tyrant, right? You'll, you'll succeed. And that's probably worse than failing under those conditions. So I think some of this is about deep human wisdom and not just Christian wisdom. I mean, of course, Christians learn from Jews about 
honoring different seasons, right? Celebrating different holidays. And it, that's in no way bound even to Jews and Christians. I mean, that is something humans have known for a long time. We need to set aside times to attend to what's happening in our lives or we'll lose touch. And so I think in some ways, that's the wisdom that we're honoring with the Christian year and, and just tying that to the story of Jesus. Let's come back to that, the the art here. So this book includes so many references to, and there's a, a reliance upon art throughout, literature, film, music, poetry. Uh, I came away with <laughs> quite a list of movies to see, books to read, and works of art to encounter. So thank you for that. Uh, there are many Christians though, who are suspicious of art. Um, I grew up in a tradition uh, like this, that, and that was at many times very dismissive. Uh, and art was described to me as often elitist and dangerous, and we need to have our own art and look at this art. This art is good. This art is bad. I was taught to distrust. And once I learned differently, I had no idea where to begin. Um, and art and poetry felt really distant to me. Like I didn't have even the basic skills to encounter them. And I know for some of our some of our listeners will share that experience and, per, and perhaps minister to people who are in that space. And when I talked to um, Mako Fujimura a while back, I, I brought up this situation as well and asked him a version of the question I'm going to ask you. So what would you say to those of us who are hungry for the kind of formation you speak about in this book? Encounters with art that form us in an understanding of the true Christ, as you discuss in chapter one, you might want to flesh that out a bit. And what posture before art and before the Holy Spirit as an individual and as a community is best for us beginners, or even for those who are might be jaded with the possibility of theological formation in this yeah. space? Man, I, this is such a great question. And I, I cannot kind of pull apart my own thoughts. I mean, which are a jumble here. So I'll, I'll just pull on a few threads and you can direct me. I mean, in terms of why we haven't appreciated it. I mean, I think the churches I grew up in, the way we framed it is we were too busy with the Lord's work to worry about stuff like that, right? We didn't have time for movies and we didn't have time to go to the movies, much less make movies or appreciate them in any artistic sense. And I think for us, it was a sense of, you know, this is the end of time, right? That Jesus is going to return at any moment. And we've got to be busy with what really matters, which is revival, right? Getting souls saved before the end of the world, because literally heaven and hell depends upon, upon this. I think that probably what was really at play was something more like a class issue that we, we were, we thought art was for snooty people, right? For wealthy people of, you know, who had who had time for that kind of thing. So although we never, at least I don't remember us framing it in those terms, I suspect now that that had a lot to do with it, right? That it was a kind of white middle class, working class sensibility. But of course, we were doing art too. I mean, even though we would never have called it that, I mean, we we were singing songs and preaching sermons that were artful, or at least were attempting to be. So I I've kind of come to the place where I think we are artful, whether we want to be or not. We might not give it that name. We might, in fact, insist that that's what not what we're doing. 
but to be human is is to have artfulness in you and it will it will show itself one way or another now i i think it doesn't mean that we automatically appreciate art like we should i don't think i don't want to say that i do think there's a way in which somehow the artfulness that is in us will express itself but you have to be trained discipled i think to appreciate art that comes from circles that that aren't your own and art that isn't instinctive to you like i think you have to learn to appreciate that and and tragically I don't think that even though I grew up in a church that we could not have had a higher view of the Bible in terms of what we claimed for it, you know, and not just claim for the text. I mean, literally for the book itself. I mean, in, in my church, you know, the book was almost a talisman. If they were praying for healing, they would touch you with the book. Or sometimes if preachers were preaching about calling people to repentance, they would put a Bible at the back door and say, you know, if you step over the Bible, you're, you're stepping over the word of God instead of coming forward to, you know, so the Bible had this talismanic semi-divine status, right? Not only as a text, but even as a book. And yet I don't think we had any appreciation at all for the artfulness of the text, right? Like there was no sense that these stories were artfully told in, in, in any language. I mean, of course we wouldn't have called it that, but I, I don't think we read, I mean, I probably read through the King James Version when I was eight years old for the first time from cover to cover. But I don't think I had any sense. I know I didn't have any sense at all that there was skill there, that there was artfulness in the way the stories were told. And it it really took for me college classes reading what we would call literature to realize, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> like, like that's actually in the text of scripture. So I, I know I'm, kind of circling around the question you asked, but I think I, I would say this. I, I do think as a pastor, I'm always trying to get people to see how artful scripture actually is. And I do think that when when it does ignite for you, as it did for me, and I had a few experiences, I talked some about this in the book, but a few experiences with art over the course of my life that, that kind of ignited me, made me aware. And I think we need to just keep speaking and acting in ways that position people to have that encounter, right? The I think the beautiful is something that happens to us. I don't think you can manufacture it. I don't think you should try. I, I, one, of our, one of our problems, and here by our, I mean white evangelicals in the States, like we tend to try to, if, if we get engaged in arts at all, we tend to do it, as I said before, to illustrate something, or we tend to do it as a kind of technique for winning people, right? So it's a it's a hook to get people involved. So at our church, not mine, but at our churches, we might do a series on Christ at the movies. It's just a way of kind of getting people into the pews or getting people into the seats. I don't think that's how the beautiful works, right? Like the beautiful is is not so easily managed and controlled. And so we need to bear witness to it in in any and every way that we can. And I would love to see, and I know that this is a complicated history, but I, I do think the church should patronize the arts. I mean, that there should be a way in which our churches are celebrating artists and doing what we can to draw attention to the artful wherever it is. So, I mean, again, that's a dozen answers to your question, but that's those are places I would begin. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Um, and 
Could you um, maybe expand a bit on thinking about, I can't remember the words you've used, but you're talking about um, as a hook, art as a hook, or um, I thought about how we manipulate art or we use it kind of as in uh, kind of mechanistically to manipulate or even sort of in the maybe a f- even larger sense colonize. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, right. I think that is right. And, and it's, it's of course the matrix, you know, when it first came out, I think every youth pastor in America felt responsible to talk about discipleship in those terms, you know, red pill, blue pill and all that. And of course, superhero movies tend to this end as well. And Braveheart. Star, Braveheart. Oh my gosh, yeah. And and I think <laughs> the these kinds of these kinds of movies, especially movies, I, I think you can see the churches that we're talking about, they they tend to be pop. And so they're mostly engaging with pop art. And so they're engaging with music and they're engaging with film, well, movies. Um, far more than they are, say, poetry or sculpture or novels. Not exclusively, but mostly. And I, th- I think the the aspect of this I'm trying to name is that is usually used as a setup to get people's attention so we can tell them about Jesus, right? So it's a, it's a setup for what, you know, a Jesus juke of some kind, like the, you know, here's whatever the, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever the pop culture focus is at the moment. How do I get from that to Jesus? And I use this reference to the pop culture phenomenon to get people in the room and then I shift to talking about Jesus. That's at least what we think we're doing. I'm not sure that that's actually what's happening, but I think that's what was imagined. Well, maybe go on the constructive side of that um, about, you give a few examples in the book about kind of false Christ. And I think what you're talking about can lead there, but you know, I don't, obviously I want to, I, I want to make a, a note there that the Holy Spirit will pretty much use anything. Um, but sometimes I think that's in spite of, of our efforts as opposed to, as opposed to the intention. So can you talk about encountering art and kind of that false Christ or true Christ dynamic piece? Um, specifically the true Christ piece, because I found that to be really um, compelling because it, it involved for me, you know, since I'm speaking to a fellow Pentecostal here, um, it's, a, it's a way of thinking about the, this discerning of spirits, right? Of thinking about what am I seeing and, and, and what am I viewing? What am I taking in? And what, how is this connecting me with my understanding of who Christ is. Um, and I, and I think, and you demonstrate how that's not necessarily straightforward just because Jesus is in a film and it's supported by lots of people. And we'll come back, my friends, we're going to get to passion of the Christ. Don't you worry. Um, (laughs) uh, when just thinking about what happens when we are, we think, well, because Jesus is a film, because this is a Christian quote unquote, Christian project. What is it that we are discerning? What is it that we're seeing? Um, yeah. So I, I think th- that language of true Christ comes from Malik and a scene in A Hidden Life where the there's a painter in a church like re- 
kind of refurbishing the the, the iconography in in this church, and he's kind of meditating on what it is he wants to do. You know, so he says the line is, "Someday I will paint a true Christ." Right, right now I'm just painting what people want to see, but someday I'll paint a true Christ. And I think that is, I mean, such an apt description of what a lot of, a lot of what we've done in in terms of quote unquote Christian art and Christian reception of pop art like we've we've kind of we've looked for images of Jesus and images of ourselves that are comforting that bring us a kind of solace or a certainty that we're right that the world is what we want it to be and that i think is the falseness of it that, that a, a true christ is a christ that brings you into touch with reality it doesn't it doesn't let you have your fantasies right that there's a astounding line i can't quote it right now but there's a astounding line by iris murdoch where she says the only freedom worth the name is a freedom from fantasy and and illusion and that's what i think true artfulness does the true christ sets us free and true artfulness witnesses to the truth in a way that kind of strips away the fantasies we've made for ourselves and, and those fantasies can work in all kinds of ways. I mean, we can make ourselves seem better than we are. We can make our enemies seem worse than they are. And I, I, by the way, I mean, I know we're getting to it, but I, this is why I think The Passion of the Christ was such a a bad film, right? Because it it gave us the worst of all those fantasies. And, and what we need, not just in stories about Jesus, what we need in stories and songs and all arts is truthfulness, not fantasy not illusion. And a true Christ, whether that's explicitly a movie about Jesus or it's about something else, but is about Jesus for those of us who are Christians who believe Jesus is the one who holds all things together, there, there's, a, there's a truthfulness about it, right? There's a way in which it's bringing us in touch with reality, and it won't let us, it won't let us have childishness and self-indulgent fantasy like it won't this is i mean we can overdo the criticisms of sentimentality but i do think jeremy begbie has that right that there is a kind of sentimentality that is about fantasy it is it is a kind of illusion that allows me to feel what i want to feel rather than to live in the world as it is and to engage people as they are well since you since we both brought it up i think i'll skip ahead so we're going to Friends, we're going to move slightly ahead to Good Friday, but then we're going to come back. <laughs> so we're going to skip around the church calendar here. So uh, let's go to that Good Friday chapter, which is where you talk about the Passion of the Christ. Um, there's a lot to say here, but let's first talk about with how the movie was received by viewers and critics and everyone else. I think this is a good setup. I mean, this is a 2004 film. Um, I remember churches buying out movie theaters. I remember, you know, um, it's quite a thing. And... So we can start by that kind of context and the trouble with the idea that we can access the events of Good Friday just as they happened. Mm. Yeah, that was one of the things that stunned me in in writing this book is finding Girard's reading of Good Friday, which we'll come to in a moment. I, I did not expect that. I did not see that coming at all. But I think, as everyone knows, it was a phenomenon. I mean, that movie... Like took over the world for a while, and Christians, especially evangelical Christians, many of whom were deeply anti-Catholic. I mean, I grew up with them. That's my tribe, so I can speak of it that way. Were 
unbelievably caught up in it. And I, I think this is overstatement, but someone at the time, someone now has said that that was kind of the beginning of the culture wars, that the 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 kind of disturbance around that movie galvanized the way at least the battle lines were drawn for the next 20 to 30 years of culture wars around that around that film it had that kind of impact it was enormous and critics were you know Roger Ebert and other critics like that you know famous critics were were just as affected by it i mean responded to it as as the public did so i mean it was it's hard to overstate i think i, I don't know i don't remember the box office numbers but it did incredibly well for a movie of that kind and its pop culture footprint was enormous and i think still is i mean 20 years later it still it still has that kind of heft right as a as a as a piece of pop art and it's premised on this suggestion and gibson you know the masterfulness of this on his part of selling it as a description of things as it actually happened right and that, that's this illusion and again i think that's the right word of transparency by giving us the languages and the, i mean i think the languages are the primary way in which it's meant to have this feel of authenticity and i think people saw it almost as a, as a as a photograph or you know a, a handheld camera capturing you know like a an iphone which we wouldn't have had at the time but the that's how people received it almost like this is footage from the first century you know and of course that's in no way true but i think that is how it hit people and i think because of that it it had a, an immediacy right that gripped everyone and some people were repulsed by it. I mean, of course, it was controversial. I'm not saying that everybody liked it by any means. I mean, it was there was a lot of backlash against it, but it was kind of unignorable. People had to attend to it. I especially appreciated your observation of the true source of offensiveness in this film, the brutalizing of Jesus and the dehumanizing the dehumanization of those who brutalize him. And one of the things you mentioned about like kind of the sense of like the iPhone like footage. Um, I heard a lot of talk around the film about how, yeah, it's it's rated R because of the excessive violence, but this is what it would actually have been like. Exactly. Right? That's right. So, Which is in no way true. Like, crucifixion right. was not like that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. and But there's a sense in which it was almost like the, and I don't want to fault everyone who who viewed it that way, because I think that there was a particular what that speaks to me about is the sort of desperation of Christians to connect with who Christ is and what Christ has done and a sense where they feel at some ways distant from it and are desperately trying to seek something to connect again. Um, and, and I think the film played on that um, and, and, and spoke to that space so yeah, uh, I, yeah I, I, can, can I speak to that before yeah, we go, go on? Because I think that's a really important. I definitely do not want to leave the impression with the book or my conversation with you that that people should feel bad about whatever their experience was watching the film. Because I, I, I mean, human beings are incredibly complex, and art exceeds whatever the intentions of the art artists are. So I, I don't at all. I would. I'm not at all surprised by people who found it a deeply moving 
thing. And I don't think that that means that somehow they were, you know, foolish or failing to discern what was taking place. I mean, again, we're, we're talking about the mystery of the spirit. We're talking about the complexity of human knowing. We're talking about the ways in which art transcends its own limits, right? So absolutely, there's room for genuinely moving experiences in relation to the film. That said, I think we can critique, you know, what the film is saying of itself, what it and what the filmmaker has said about what he wants to do, and how cast... and how Christians maybe perpetuate yeah, things, absolutely. right? Like right. how and the exactly. how it's being used as sermon illustrations, absolutely. how it's being shown in youth groups, you know, all these different things, right? Yeah. So, yep. and you're exactly. right. Uh, this this really struck me. Quote, it is one it is one thing to show that Jesus is savaged. It's another, it is an altogether different thing to show his enemies as savages. Not only because such offensive portrayals call up anti-Semitic propaganda, which Christians have used against Jews for centuries, but also because they obscure the fact that monstrous evils are almost always done not by monsters, but by ordinary people, often with the best intentions and with the clearest consciences. So that was really intense. And when I read this, I was reminded of a section from Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, where he talks about how Christians can take on a terrifying and monstrous appearance. And to paraphrase Barth, because, you know, to quote him, it would take too long. Uh, Basically, we all freak out and point out the inhumanity when something awful happens. The shame, never again, never again, we say, right? And in his context, it, right, Nazi Germany. And then the monstrous event fades to the margin, kind of earmarked as abnormal or an exception to who we are, instead of processing that depravity disorder in humanity as, well, actually, that is who we are. <laughs> and then we end up kind of saying, oh, well, it's irrelevant. It's a few bad apples. Uh, that won't happen again, because we would never be caught out like that. Um, we see it as an aberration. So with all that in mind, how do we respond to the cross? How can we better see Jesus as witnesses and not spectators? Maybe you can bring back in the passion of the Christ there and kind of lead us into that. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of my critique of, of the movie is that it makes Jesus into a spectacle and it makes Jesus's enemies, the Pharisees in particular. I mean, what's striking is that Judas is, is a pathetic figure, even though he's dehumanized too, but the Pharisees are sheerly demonic right and the roman soldiers are i mean they're they're of the same ilk of the as the satanic character who is i think purposely portrayed as gender fluid or non-binary like there's a there's a whole lot of culture war stuff being signaled in the way that these figures are the enemies of jesus are depicted but I think what's astonishing about the Gospels themselves is that Jesus is not a spectacle. There's actually very little talk about his suffering, relatively speaking. And there isn't any scapegoating of his enemies. I mean, part of what's remarkable about the way the Gospels talk about the end of Jesus' life is that it isn't just a matter of you know, a few monsters out to get Jesus. It's Everybody, right? Everybody get, gets caught up in it in one way or another. And even those who are deeply in love with Jesus and grieve by what's happening, they're overmatched by it. They have no idea what to do. I mean, they have no idea what to say. That, you know, obviously in the Gospels, there's a lot of talk about Satan and demons, but not when you get to the end. 
Like this is not portrayed as, I mean, of course, we're told in one of the gospels that Satan enters into Judas, but for the most part, the gospels are very careful to, to make it clear that in the end, this is just human beings like Peter and James and John and Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate who are overmatched by what's happening. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. And that sense of, as Jesus himself says, as he's dying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like, that's the impression the Gospels leave. And you don't come away with spite for anyone. And I think that part of the power of Gibson's passion is you, you're you so sickened that they would do this to my Jesus. Like, that that's what I felt when I was watching it. It was like, Jesus, look what you did for me. I can't believe they would do this to you. And and the gospels don't leave you with that. And I and I don't I don't think that a good witness to Jesus would ever leave you with that. Because what, what that does, right, is it if I can put it in these terms, that appeals to the basest part of you, right? Like that appeals to not to love, not to spirit, but to your your worst fears and worst instincts and makes it so that you respond to Jesus from a place of kind of gut wrenching pity for what his body is suffering and anger at those who would do this to his body. And it's powerful. I mean, there's no doubt that Gibson touched something deep in our psyche when he did that, but I don't think he's touching what the gospels touch, right? I don't think he's touching faith or spirit or hope or love. He's touching something, something else, something that, that needs, that needs to be, opened up before God, not um, confused with holiness. And I think that that's part of this. What's scary to me, if I can use that word about the film, is that it was deeply moving for people. And all of us want to be deeply moved by the story of Jesus. So it was a deeply moving experience. We want to be deeply moved about Jesus. But I'm not sure we were discerning enough about whether or not it was the right kind of move, right? Are, are the right kinds of things being brought up in me? And in short, I'm saying, no, they weren't like the right kinds of things. The truth would have been not look what they are doing to my Jesus, but more uh, a sense of my share in what was happening to Jesus. I mean, that would be, and I think the Gospels give us that and Gibson's film did not. Well, let's move back to Lent. I want to, before we get to our speed round, I want to ask you another question about beauty. So let's go back to your chapter on Lent, where you confront the idea that beauty is an end in itself. Uh, the chapter is called Beauty Will Not Save the World. And but we sure think it can. Uh, your chapter brought to mind all the mundane ways, like small and large, that we try to manage difficulty. And I emphasis on the word manage difficulty and brokenness and death and injustice by rushing to the beautiful as a panacea. And one example that immediately came to mind, and it's such a funny one. uh, One example was early in the pandemic when all of those actors got together and they sang Imagine together and it was not received well. Right. But it's like, oh, a song can help us. Great. Thanks. You know, sit down. <laughs> the It was swift and intense and everybody ran the other direction. Right. Would you reflect on the dangers of beauty and how, in your words, only the beauty that cannot save the world is worth saving after all? Yeah. So I think 
for so many people, when we talk about beauty, it, it can easily just become shorthand for things that I like, right? Things that make me feel good. And I don't, I don't think any serious account of beauty can accept that, right? I mean, the beautiful is not just what I find pleasing or what leaves me feeling the way I want to feel. I, I think the beauty, beauty is, so here, I'm, and I, I think it's in this chapter that I bring up Aquinas's language of the shining forth of, of goodness, right? The beauty is the glory of God. And Robert Jensen makes much of that connection. I think that if a kind of lowbrow pop culture Christianity I grew up with, if they thought, it, they never used the language of beauty, but if they had, they would have meant something like, what do I enjoy? What, what, what kind of feels do I get from this TV show or this book or whatever? And then there's kind of a highbrow, more sophisticated take with the beautiful is is that which you know confronts us and surprises us. And I actually think it's that level of temptation I'm trying to address in this passage, right? That there is a way of kind of um, just amusement and entertainment, art as escape. That's a problem. But even highbrow art, art that confronts you with the truth of of our human experience, human condition, etc. Like that's not going to save you either. Like uh, Dostoevsky's not going to save you any more than you know your TV, your favorite TV show that you veg out with is going to save you. It's those things have to be saved by Jesus, right? That the, the beautiful is not going to redeem you, no matter how. You know, poetry can't be your savior as much as I love poetry and, and the same thing with film or or any other form of art, music. And it's actually only when we accept the kind of that limit of beauty, that the beautiful is something human beings are making and it's made part of what makes it what it is, is that it, it shares in all of our humanness, right? It has all of those limits and all of those possibilities. And God saving us is inseparable from God saving the things that we've made. I mean, this I'm, this is somewhat cliche, but I'm not going to run from it. But to me, maybe the most powerful thing in all of Tolkien's kind of world is from the Cimmerillion, where you get these the the making of the dwarves that should not have been made, right? Like at least they were not purposed, and yet they're made, and then there's this kind of moment of wrecking of what do we do now, right? Here they are. We've made this, we've made these dwarves. Um, do we destroy them? And and God's word is no, absolutely not. Like this is, this is not something you can go back on. It seems to me that that's, that's the way we need to think about what human beings make, that God is not just interested in us. He's just as much interested in what we've made as who we are and the ways in which what we're making makes us and distorts his image or or reveals it. And so those things have to be saved too. And that includes our music, our dance, our sculpture, our architecture, our food, um, as well as our stories and our poems and everything else. I mean, God, God has to redeem them in redeeming us. Yeah, and I so appreciate that. And I, I remember it as I was reading your book. Um, I mentioned earlier about not growing up in a tradition where I wasn't, you know, kind of formed in this way. But that was something that did come later. And one of the aspects of, of, of beauty and 
and how it can be part of a formational experience is really honestly the kind of it's a combination of curiosity and surprise <laughs> where if there's sort of this posture of, well, I want to sort of see where the Holy spirit is, is saying something and doing something. Where do I see God's redemptive activity going? And and if there's sort of a posture of openness to that, you can see it. And, and the one moment for me, and this is probably not going to come as a surprise. Um, I'd read the portrait of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, but seeing Ivan Albright's picture of Dorian Gray at the Art Institute in Chicago. Have you seen that? Before? I haven't seen it. No, I've heard um, about it, but I haven't seen it. I've oh heard my it's goodness. Incredible. It's humongous. I, and, and it's in, it, I, art museums, never, you know, not really been my thing, <laughs> you know, at the time, but my gosh, I stood in front of that thing for a half hour absolutely transfixed. And in, and I show it in my classes now, um, even though it doesn't quite capture it because it's on a screen, but it is, and knowing the story behind it, the combination of the literature and the image, and just just arrested me in a way. And, and I've often told people that it's one of the most, one of the most profound theological experiences I've ever had was standing in front of that. Um, and provoked by this story about someone who puts so much weight on the beauty to save him. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I appreciated that kind of that moment as I was reading through that's your a, book. Yeah. That's, a, yeah, that's, that should be in the book. <laughs> if I do a second edition, I'll say, as my friend Amy says, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, let's transition to a speed round here. Right. Um, I'm going to ask you a really an, I, I'm curious about your answer to this, but remember speed round. So the first thing that comes in your head, no dilly dallying. You just have to answer. Okay. Um, do you believe in objective beauty? No. Second question. Your sandwich falls on the floor. No one is looking. Do you eat it? If I like the sandwich, yes. What is your favorite holiday tradition? And it could be mm. any holiday. Yeah. Uh, Christmas morning, I'm sure. With the family, with my kids. What is the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? Probably something by Willie Jennings. It, it, either the, I, I mean, it could be the Acts Commentary. It could be the Christian Imagination book. I don't know. I, I, think, I think Willie Jennings' work is right on the nerve. Which Disney princess are you? Oh, my gosh. Now, this one's going to catch me. I... Uh, I don't know that you've ever spoken with anyone further from a Disney princess than I am. I want to ask my daughter and my sons this later. I'm you know, there say, are quizzes you can take. <laughs> I need to. I need to go online immediately and start the research. I, I don't know. I'm going to say Jasmine, but I'm just because that's the only name. I'm certainly not Cinderella, so I'm going to say that. Although I, I, I don't necessarily stand by. We it. can take an apophatic approach. I'm not okay. Cinderella. I'm that, not Cinderella. Okay, there you go. That's what I want to give. I'm not Cinderella. Uh, what is your favorite magical or mythological animal? Oh, wow. This is also a great question. I is Levi Does Leviathan count? Sure. Okay. So I love the book of Job, which comes up some in the book. Also, my youngest son, whose name is Emery, I have for years told him that I wanted to name him Leviathan. And that his mom would not let me and that I was going to call him Levi. And at this point, I've convinced 
him and my middle son that this is true. So I, I'm almost ready to believe it myself. So Leviathan would be my response. In the past 50 years of theology, what is the most off-the-wall theory you've heard advanced by theologians? Oh, my goodness. Now, this could take us all day. I, I, mean, I, I find a lot of the biblical studies stuff just unbelievable. You know, the, 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 the reconstruction of background, like that is that feels silly to me. But I, not all of it, but a lot of it does. But I'm a theologian, so... I don't get to say any of that. Say all the biblical studies people are like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, again, I'm I'm, I'm painting turning a too off broader this brush. podcast. Yeah, sorry, sorry, all of those. The, <laughs> I've, yeah, I've just made a whole no, a whole new group of enemies here. Sorry, you can edit that part out <laughs> since it's a speed round. I, I think the, I think the thing that annoys me most about theologian uh, habits we develop are are ways in which we. We are either, it seems like we make two kinds of mistakes over and over again. One of them is whatever is in kind of in the air at the moment, we're too quick to try to do theology around that. Or we go on doing theology as if nothing has changed, you know, in the last 500 years. I think it's really hard. And this is one of the reasons I, I celebrate Willie Jennings' work. I mean, I think it's it's hard to do work that has relevance, that doesn't feel like you're seizing the moment to say something. And that's really hard to do, really hard to do. Perhaps a related question. What's one idea in theology you think needs to die? Mm. Well, I mean, obviously this this is already dead in some circles, but in in my circles, right, I think the idea that there's a condition on God's relation to us, right? So I think in, in my circles, there's still, and this isn't true everywhere by any means, but in the circles I work in, there's still an assumption that God is kind of conditioned by his nature, by eternity, and we're conditioned by time and physicality, and that those conditions kind of make it hard for us to relate to God, and that issues of free will and predestination and obedience and faith and all of that are become insoluble problems because we've got a deeper metaphysical problem about how can God relate? How can God be God and us be our, and we be ourselves in freedom? I, I think all of those are, it's just predicated on a misunderstanding of what it means for God to be God and means for us to be the creatures we are. So I think this sense of protecting the difference between the creator and the creature, that's what I would say needs, needs to die. Tea or coffee? Coffee, although I love tea too, but coffee if I have to pick. What superpower do you wish you could have? Is not making a fool of myself? Is that a superpower? <laughs> I don't know. Right? <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> That's a good one. I, I listened to a great podcast today, actually driving around, um, talking about the history of superheroes and heard about some of the failed superheroes in the past. But this, yeah, this is, I, I think I would like to try to be whatever you know the if, the if you have the joker like what would it be to kind of be the opposite of that like a someone who brings no harm to others but also does not make a fool of himself that's that's what that's a superhero i'd like to nice be. and last question what work of art and it can be any medium was slash is the most difficult for you to engage with 
music is the hardest to write about for me. It's not the hardest for me to engage with. Like I, I love listening to music, but I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever read anything written about music that felt convincing to me. Felt like it was. I mean, you can write about lyrics. I'm talking about music, though, right? Like I think, you know, writing about lyrics is not that different from writing about poetry, but. But music, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever read anything. I, I, and I think I have a hunch as to why. I think that music is deeper than language, right? Like it's it's um, it's closer to subconscious. It's closest closer closer to precognitive, and I think that's why it's hard. Yeah, and there's a sense of um, you know you can write about Bach. <laughs> and a piece, but there's also a, a situatedness and a, and a ephemerality to listening to music. That's right. Um, yeah. Especially when it's in person, but you're right about that piece. Um, I, I was an oboe player in past life. Um, and every time I go to the symphony, which admit has not been in quite some time. Um, but uh, so this always happens to me in person when I go uh, but the other day we watched with my son, the Nutcracker, um, a performance of it, and they show the orchestra. And to this day, it never fails when an orchestra starts tuning. I almost cry. I don't know. Like there's just something about that kind of like coming together piece of it where the cacophony of everybody playing their instruments and then it coming together. And there's just something there just kind of unlocks something of expectation of something that I, it, I've not been able to kind of. I'd love to read. You should write that. I'd love to read it. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, George Steiner has written some stuff about music, but I think part of the issue though, is this goes back to, I was raised around people who loved music, but it was all lowbrow folksy music. Like I, I was not raised around classical music at all. And I think that's some of it, like the, the formative experiences of music for me are, are church, it's church music and it's, it's music that it's folksy, but it's tied to, you know, the most important things in my life. And so I think it's hard. That's part of what's hard about it too, is, is it's hard for me personally. I, I'm not trying to theorize for everybody else, but I think my own relationship to the most formative experiences of music it's, it's a complicated one yeah well two two questions to end our time so as a theologian how do you hope to see your work serve the church and where do you think we fail yeah i mean this is going to sound pretentious or silly but i mean really i just i hope that my work would help people fall in love with jesus and pay attention to other people who love Jesus. I mean, I, I, that, I don't know how else to say that. I mean, I think it's a, I don't know what else we, we should aspire to really. I mean, it, it, it is a, I, I love the work of theology and I, I want to engage it with all the seriousness it requires. But at the end of the day, for me, it, it isn't just an academic career. You know, it, it, it is, it is a calling that that's how I understand it. So I, I, I would say that it has to be the answer to the first one in terms of what do we get wrong? Oh man, I think we lose touch with that. 
I've been doing a lot of work over the last month with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it's such a cautionary. I'm I'm probably going to cry talking about this. Um, I think he's a good example of how easily things can go wrong. Like I, I, of course, he's incredibly famous, right? And we all know him. And I, I would say, I mean, I just gave a lecture last week at a church for Advent, and I asked, you know, who's heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Everybody in the room had. And this is, you know, this is not. These are not academics. I mean, these are you know people in a local church in Eastern Washington. Everybody knows Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but what they know about him obscures what he was really about, right? What they know about him is, you know, cost of discipleship and resistance to Hitler and all that. But his work, if you pay attention to it, I mean, he's a theologian of joy and he's a theologian of Christmas carols and delight in Jesus and and delight in the life Jesus has made possible. And it it grieves me that we... We tell his story in ways that sensationalize his life. And, not referring to anybody in particular. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. It's just it, it, it grieves me, right? That here's yeah. a man who who did die tragically. Like, don't don't make it. You know, yes, in some sense he's a martyr, but that it is tragic that he died, and it's. It's tragic that we are taking, we're making raids on his work that, you know, work for us in our culture wars, when in fact what he was about, what he what he was saying and doing is something altogether different and so much about Jesus, right? I mean, you, you can get, and you know this, but I mean, there's kind of a liberal Protestant Bonifer of the letters and papers in prison, and then there's the kind of evangelical Protestant of cost of discipleship. But both of those are BS. I mean, that's not at all who he was. And his work is so much richer and wiser than that. And so I think some of what we get wrong is that we just, man, we rush to conclusions. We appropriate and excavate and, and we use. These are the, the old colonial habits, right? And we, we, we resource, we take what we want and we use it for what we want. And I think that We've got to break that habit, right? To, to to kind of find a way. I mean, that's not the right way to put it. It's worse than. It's more than breaking a habit. We've got to repent of that sin. That the these the work that these men and women have done in witness to Jesus. It needs to be celebrated on its own terms and not not exploited for whatever ends we have in mind. Well, one more, maybe possibly related, or you can go a different direction. What grieves you about the state of theological discourse and practice now? And what gives you hope? Yeah, I think what grieves me is what I was just naming, right? I think that's, it's what we're getting wrong. I I still feel like, again, and I can't speak for every circle. I'm just talking about, you know, the conversations I'm a part of. It always feels like our work is, is being pulled to, well, so what does this mean for the American culture wars? Right. What does this mean for questions about LGBTQ, quote unquote, issues? What does this mean for abortion or whatever? And that's just so unfaithful, I think, and so unloving. And that grieves me. What gives me hope is I think God is good and sin always runs out of steam. Right? And that kind of foolishness eventually, 
eventually collapses. It can't go on forever. And so I, I have the hope of God has all the time in the world that eventually um, these these culture wars will end, right? I mean, we won't, they're not going to matter in the same way, hopefully, to my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, the way that they seem to matter to people in my generation. I also think that um, there are, I think going back to your book about art, I, I do think I mentioned curiosity and surprise earlier. I think that um, I've also been kind of taking from your book and also what you're saying about how attending to, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, attending to um, a work of art or a piece of music and, and kind of experience expecting to use advent language <laughs> expecting the holy spirit to be there and and to have a conversation about it and to be formed um and i and i think that's really what that's one of the things i gleaned from your book was um because there were several things that you know i'd never seen or or, or heard or whatnot and but then there are a few things that you mentioned that i was like oh i never interpreted it that way. And it was, it was a joy to kind of say, Oh, there's a new moment that I can have with this. There's a new, there's new space that's carved out and, and going all the way back to the very beginning when you were talking about reading scripture, how, if you have too wooden of a approach to it, then there's, there's a lack of sense of it being living <laughs> and active, right. And something that is transformative and formative and both for us individually and communally. And That's right. And I could not agree more. And I think that the surprise, the Robert Jensen, who's theologian that shaped me really deeply, he would talk about you know, this. This is what makes the difference between a living and a dead person is that a living person can still surprise you and that God can surprise you. And then he went so far as to say, God can surprise God. And what, what would it mean to talk about God surprising God? And I think the I wrote a piece years ago on kind of theological disagreement. And what I, what I argued in that piece was we have to learn to engage in conversations expecting the surprise, knowing that it's coming. We just have to stay in the conversation until the surprise happens. And the surprise will be, oh, yes, now I see, right? And, but we have to stay in the conversation. And I think the arts can teach us that experience of surprise. It can give us a taste for, listen, you can look at something or listen to something or read something for years and years and years, but there's still surprise there. It, it will catch you if you'll let it. And of course, that's true of people too. And it's true of God. And we should live like that, live with that kind of openness and expectation. I, I, was, I was thinking just earlier today about you know, in kind of offhanded English, when we say, I have a view about something, or I have views on something, what we mean is, I have a take, I have an opinion. How strange that is. Like, instead of, like, I can see it and honor it for what it is, like, even my perception of it is bound up with what I want to make of it or what I have made of it. And I think that I, I'm really influenced here by Simon Weil and Iris Murdoch and others in that tradition who argue that love is attention, like love is being able to see without imposition, without violating, and that 
there there needs to be and and not spectating like not looking in ways that are morally distanced but an awareness an attention that is not appropriating or exploiting by seeing and the i mean this could take us far afield but this is i i feel like this is getting right at the heart of what our problem is and our problem and i, I think it's I don't think it's as simple as it is American problem, but it it has a particularly American form of, you know, whatever we set our eyes on, we're conditioned to think about what that means for me, how it's useful for me, what place it has in, in my life, in my experience. And I think the spirit wants to, to alter that in us. Amen. Well, what a delight it was to talk with you, Chris. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for making time for it. I really appreciate it. This is your host, Amy Hughes, with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Chris Green, professor of public theology at Southeastern University and pastor at Sanctuary Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Chris's book, All Things Beautiful and Aesthetic Christology, is published by Baylor University Press. You can find a link to the book on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.